0: While we were working overseas, one of the practices we had with our students was to send them out uh, once a month off into a local village church somewhere and so they spread out in all sorts of places. And then typically at the mid-year kind of break in the uh, semester pattern, we would send them out for a whole week or 10 days or so out into the villages. But it happened in one year that that break fell during an election period and election periods in other countries are nothing like election periods in our country. They're very unstable um, and there's some significant risk of, risk of violence and, um, and all sorts of stuff. So we said, well, we can't send our 120-odd students out. What are we going to do? And so we racked our brains for a while and it came kind of back to me because I was in charge of the academic program. And we decided to do some seminars with the students around uh, human relationships, particularly the sexual relationships. It's a topic that's not readily spoken about in some cultures, but these men and women were training to become pastors and teachers and we needed to understand what does the Bible actually say on this topic? And so to address that, we enlisted the services of a Catholic nun who worked not too far from us, a lady by the name of Sister Rose. Now you can probably imagine her if I describe her. She was absolutely a nun, you could tell. Do you want to know how you could tell? By the kind of clothes that she wore. She was a very diminutive kind of a woman, um, probably only came up to sort of mid-height on me, but she was an absolute dynamo. And she said, yeah, I'd love to come and talk to the students because she was working at the time uh, amongst HIV AIDS sufferers in a country that did not acknowledge HIV AIDS particularly well nor have any real sense of what was going on in that space in terms of transmission or treatment or any of those kinds of things. And Sister Rose was undertaking some really significant ministry amongst men particularly who were suffering with this rather insidious disease. And so she was keen to speak to the students to talk about the pastoral care aspects but also the transmission aspects. And I can remember to this day, as she stood in front of the auditorium filled with students and she said to them, now, do you want me to kind of just go along the surface and just give you the lights up or do you want me to go deep? And you know, being um, bravado Melanesian men, mostly they said, oh, we're educated, go deep, go deep. And she said, you well, you asked for it, and she went deep. <laughs> and I sat towards the back of the auditorium, listening, but also watching. Because as she went deep, she described in all sorts of graphic detail Uh, methods of transmission. I reckon if the Pope had been there, he would have gone red, seriously, (laughs) because she, she did not hold back. And you could see a lot of these guys, particularly, who were just wishing that the ground would open up and swallow them because it was deeply embarrassing for them in some senses, and yet was so necessary to talk about those things. There are occasions where we come across stuff Even things in the church where we are a little bit like some of those students possibly, we just kind of wish the ground would open up and swallow us. And I introduce the um, passage today in this way because we come to a part of the book of Judges which is rarely preached, um, not well understood, and to be frankly honest, as we even talk about it in the church, sometimes we might think, my goodness, why is this even in the Bible? And if we've got a bit of a radar out thinking, well, if there's people here who are new to church, who've never been in church before, what are they going to be thinking about the scripture, about God, about the things that we talk about in church? Because as we come to Judges chapter 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, these last five chapters of Judges, there's some stuff in here that is very uh, difficult to talk about. And thankfully, Matt's doing the hard one next week. He's shaking his head already. Uh, My task today is relatively easy. But let me just give you a little bit of a handle on how we're gonna approach it. Because these last few chapters, in some senses, are an epilogue to the book of Judges. Last week we finished talking about Samson. He was the last of the Judges. And in a sense, the story of the Judges has finished. What we see in these next few chapters, and this is the lens that we're gonna use to look through, is a description by the narrator of what life was like in Israel when there was no king and when everyone did as they saw best in their own eyes. So just step back from the text for a second and think about that statement. What is life in Israel like when there is no king, when the people don't honor God as king and when everyone does what is right in their own eyes? And the description of what takes place in these next few chapters is tawdry at best and distressing at worst, but it's in the Bible. And Paul did say to Timothy that all scripture is there for a reason. And so we're gonna understand that even these passages have something to say to us over this uh, next couple of weeks. Today we're gonna start uh, and have a look at two chapters in fact. So I'm gonna roll through Uh, chapter 17 and chapter 18. Uh, It starts with the story of Micah's idols. Now, before we start reading, let me just say this is not the same Micah as the prophet Micah, okay? This is just a random Micah. Don't confuse those two. It's important that we don't because this Micah, the Micah that we're going to hear about here today, uh, didn't kick many goals spiritually, let's just say. He's just a random Micah from the hill country of Ephraim now I'm going to read through the text we'll chuck it up on the screen so that you've got it there uh, and make some comments as we go let's read through these first few verses now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother there's clearly some backstory here we can figure out the 1100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse I have that silver with me I took it his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1100 of shekel, shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make an idol and it was put in Micah's house. Now you can see already, can't you, as I said a moment ago, we're having a snapshot here of life in Israel when there was no king, when God was not on it as king, when people did whatever they liked. There's some problems, right? There's all sorts of problems. It would be kind of fun to go through the text. One of the strategies we were taught when we were being taught how to preach was ask questions of the text. Now what do we learn about Micah? He's a thief but he's also a very, uh, what would be the best way to describe him. Um, He's a superstitious thief too, because he stole the 1100 shekels of silver. That's worth around about $8,500 in today's money, by the way. He stole it, but he heard his mother utter a curse against the person who stole it, and he thought, oh my goodness, this is bad. I better do something about this, you know? He obviously believed uh, that the uh, curse that his mother uh, uttered would be effective and so he decided the best course of uh, action was to return the loot and look what happens when his thievery is confessed Micah's mother didn't censure him Uh, she did not rebuke him she didn't ask him for repentance Uh, she didn't say you naughty boy Uh, she just said well the Lord bless you my son isn't it wonderful what you've brought the money back no consequences nothing no punishment for his deception And as I was reading that, I was thinking, you know, um, a condemning and a punishing parent can do a lot of harm to a child, but so can a parent who makes excuses for their children. A child who never has to face the consequences of their own choices is a child that never matures. And this little snapshot that we have here of the relationship between Micah and his mother actually goes a long way to explaining why Micah was the way he was. I think his mother has to take some responsibility. We don't know about his father, probably uh, not much better in that space. And so, any rate, as the story goes, the silver was returned and uh, Micah's mother decided to dedicate it to the Lord. She made an image of God, an idol, which she proceeded to have made. And it's important to note too at this point, and this is really important as we think about this text, Micah and her mother were not pagan worshippers. You know, when we think about people making idols, we immediately think of an idol of Baal or an idol of uh, Dagon, the god of the Philistines, or one of the Asherahs or something like that. This is a family who are nominally uh, worshippers of the Lord. And so this idol that she is about to have uh, made is actually an image of the God of Israel. And when we think about images, when we think about idols, again, typically we think of other things. But is it okay to make an image of the God of Israel? The answer is no, it's not. The Old Testament condemns, and God makes it very clear, that there's not to be any images made even of him. And the reason that this is prohibited by God's second commandment is that no idol can be made that ever truly represents the character of God. No idol could ever communicate all of the qualities or the characteristics of God. In fact, if you think about it, you know, if it, an, an idol, let's just say if we um, made an idol of God that demonstrated his power, for instance, or his strength, a bull, let's just use that as an example, it would communicate power and strength, but it actually doesn't communicate grace and love and mercy. Any time an idol uh, is made, it communicates certain aspects of the character of the God and not others. And so the Lord said there's not to be any idols. Theologically, the problem with idols is an age-old one, substituting God with something else that we worship, or as was the case with Micah, picking and choosing the aspect of God's character that he wants to worship while excluding others. I don't know if you've ever heard... Um, people say, you know, they're reading through the Old Testament, for instance, and there's some pretty difficult stuff in there. And, uh, and a person might say, you know, I don't want to worship a God like that. I don't want to worship a God who would do that kind of stuff. We can't accept a God who would act like that. That's exactly the problem with, uh, with what Mike is facing here too. Picking and choosing the aspects of God's character that he wants and ignoring other aspects. There's the problem with uh, making an idol. And so we see in this introduction, Micah's mother took the money, dedicated it to the Lord to make an idol. I don't know if you picked this up. She spent 200 shekels out of the 1100 making the idol. I wonder what happened to the other 900. I dedicate it all to the Lord, but I'm only going to spend this much. That's an interesting thing going on there too. Let's just leave that parked for the time being. It kind of resonates though with something that happened in the New Testament. Are you familiar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Sold some property. Yes, we've given it all to God. Well, actually, they didn't. They kept some back. They could have kept some back quite legitimately, but they were dishonest about what they had done. And here Micah's mother acts in a very similar way. So you can see already, even just at the outset of this passage, things are not going well in Israel during this time. The religious life is active, for sure. There are people interested in spirituality, have a little bit of an eye to how this uh, relates to our day people are hungry for spiritual things people are interested in religion and faith and so they will cherry pick and take what's good from here and somewhere from somewhere else and something else and kind of package it all together meld it together into this conglomeration of stuff that works for me and that's what Micah and his mother were doing you can see how relevant the book of Judges is to our day just by that reflection can't you so let's read on. This is what happens next. Now, this man, Micah, had a shrine and he made an ephod that was a sort of a breastplate for discerning God's will and some household gods and installed one of his sons as a priest. Again, there's a problem there because the priests were supposed to have come from the line of the Levites, not anybody could be a priest. And the author again reminds us in those days, Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. And so Micah is absolutely shaping his religious life to suit himself and the story continues a young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah who had been living within the clan of Judah left that town in search of some other place to stay on his way he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim and Micah asked him where are you from I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah he said and I'm looking for a place to stay." stay now without going into a great deal of um, detail around the geography or the theology, it's suffice to say the Levite's lost. He's lost geographically, he's in a place that he shouldn't be and he's lost theologically. It's possible that because the religious life of Israel was in such tatters, the Levites, who were supposed to be supported by the people so that they could minister, were not being supported. And so this guy said, well, I'm just going to have to find somewhere else to earn an income. I'm going to have to find some other way of uh, supporting myself. And what do you know? He stumbles up across Micah. And then Micah said to him, Micah who is one who sees an opportunity, live with me and be my father and priest and I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year. Your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. You see the spiral, downward spiral is happening here. Micah's a great proponent of do-it-yourself religion and he's organising his religious world around uh, himself. His statement there in verse 13 is very telling where he says, now I know the Lord will be good to me. In other words, I've lined up all the ducks. I've got everything I want. I've got the epod, I've got the idols. I've even got my own priest. Everything will be good. God will have to do this for me now, right? The Lord will be good to me. The purpose of his religious efforts were at last clear. He wanted to get access to God and get God to do whatever he wanted. But here's a question worth reflecting on, and this is for you. Is it worth worshipping a God who will do whatever you want? Is it actually worth worshipping a God who will do whatever you want, a God who can be manipulated, a God who is kind of at your beck and call? Is it worth having a God like that? And yet man-made religion does just that. The tragedy of man-made religion, whenever we shape God to suit our purposes, is that it always reduces God to somebody who can be controlled, someone that you can get what you want from. Man-made religion, that which we see demonstrated here by Micah, actually makes God controllable. He will answer our questions, he will do whatever we want, And you'd have to ask the question, what's the point of worshipping a God who's smaller than you are? If you can control God, who's actually in charge here? And the question that we ought to throw at Micah is this one. um, What's the point of worshipping a God who can be stolen from you? Because if you read on in the text, you'll find that later on some others come along and nick off with his God. And Micah's left going, my goodness, I've got nothing left. One of the questions that um, I get asked from time to time, normally by people outside the church, is this one. Are you a religious person? Sometimes on forms I have to put down um, you know, what my vocation is and typically um, you tick the box, minister of religion. But I rarely say, yes, I'm a religious person because at its core, religion is all about the search for God and guess what? He found us we don't have to do religion anymore. And there's a very big difference between uh, man-made religion, the idea of shaping God and doing all of these rituals so that God will do what we want and the kind of faith that the gospel speaks about. You see, gospel faith, gospel faith that's centered on Jesus is in deep contrast uh, to these things that we see Micah doing. Gospel faith invites us into a relationship with a real big but dangerous God have you ever thought about God as a dangerous God we never know for sure what he might do we can look back and we can see from history some of the things he has done we know from experience what he is doing but he's in some senses unpredictable he's not a controllable God and that makes him worthy of worship doesn't it because he's bigger than us Gospel faith invites us into an experience of love that we can't begin to measure. It's beyond words the way that God loves us. He's not controlled in that space. It's an abundant, flowing, free, expansive love. Gospel faith invites us to uh, worship a God who lifts from us guilt. You can do all sorts of stuff with guilt, I've decided. You can kind of ignore it or plaster over it but inevitably it poisons you if you don't deal with it but God actually says, I will take that guilt. I will relieve you of that guilt. Gospel faith actually gives us freedom from guilt. Gospel faith brings us into submission to a God who does justice in a way that induces godly fear, the very best kind of fear. It's a faith that invites us to experience liberation from the power of sin. It's a faith that invites us to experience God's righteousness as he imparts that on us and gives that to us freely so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sinfulness, but he sees the righteousness of Christ at work in us. Gospel faith invites us into a relationship with the life and activity of God's Holy Spirit changing us to be the people that he wants us to be enjoying the blessings of living and walking according to the purposes that he's created us for and the tragedy of man-made religion the religion that we're looking at here with Micah is that it always reduces God from this expansive unpredictable dangerous God down to someone who can be controlled and who will do certain things in certain contexts in certain ways It also reduces God to one who can't help or save or bless as Micah is about to discover in chapter 18 because in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five of their leading men from Zorah and Eshtaol to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all the Danites and they told them, go explore the land. Now let's just get a little bit of context happening here. There's a little map that you'll see um, behind me here of Israel. The fact of the matter is when God allocated the land to the tribes, the tribe of Dan was allocated a land in the same manner that all the other tribes were allocated a place in the promised land. You can actually see uh, just here where the little red dot is there between the coast and Ephraim was the area that Dan was to be in. Just curiously too, in the context of this story, not all that far from the land of the Philistines, which you can see here, and Gaza that we were talking about last week where Samson went down, and you know what Samson did down there, we don't need to say that again. So Dan actually did have a place to live. The problem was when God had given them the land, they went in, but they didn't fulfill the command to clear it out. God had said, go in and push those Canaanites out uh, using the strength that I've given you, but they didn't do that. They uh, refused or were scared of doing that. And so this area that they were supposed to inhabit um, was uninhabitable. They were, as the scripture says, confined to the hills, the rocky country. Uh, They didn't have somewhere where they had settled. So... What they did, they entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah where they spent the night. When they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite, so they turned in there and asked him, Who brought you here and what are you doing in this place? Why are you here? Now the young Levite said, uh, He told them what Micah had done for him and said, He's hired me and I'm his priest. And so the Danites who saw an opportunity said, well, please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. That's a kind of a silly question because God had actually given them really clear instructions about what they were to do. What they were doing was not according to God's plan for them. And in a way, they were trying to co-opt God into their plans. I don't think any of us have ever done that. (laughs) Okay, let me rephrase that. I'm pretty sure every one of us has done that at some point. Here's a great idea, let's do that and let's hope God comes with us. And so the Danites were in that kind of space. Uh, the text goes on, sorry, I missed a line there. The priest answered them, go in peace, your journey has the Lord's approval. I can't help but wonder whether the young Levite was actually trying to ingratiate himself in uh, making that response. Uh, we don't know that for sure. So the text goes on, the five men left him and came to Laish where they saw the people were living in safety like the Sidonians at peace and secure and since they lacked, their land lacked nothing they were prosperous. Also they lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. Now again let's just chuck this into some geographical um, uh, context. They've moved from down here where they were supposed to be up through Ephraim and they've gone for a big walk all the way north way up here to the top here, right up towards this area here. You'll actually see written on this map, Dan. You'll understand why that's on the map in a few moments. Let me just show you a picture or two of what the land looks like. This is actually the land that is about to become occupied by the Danites. Uh, You wouldn't want to occupy that land right now, let me just say that, because, and I was desperately trying to do this, uh, if you see that little sign there, it says, Danger, Landmines. Because this is on the border of um, Israel and Lebanon, and so um, is a dangerous place to live today to some degree. But in those days, it wasn't rocky hill country, it was nice, as you can see, nice open plains. Uh, it was well watered. I think I might have shown this photo before. This is where the Jordan River rises, the springs come out of the ground uh, at this place. In fact, uh, the spot where I'm standing taking this photo is bone dry. A metre or two in front, the water is percolating out of the ground. Uh, thousands of litres a minute, and an, amazing, an amazing spring to look at. Within moments, it's forming up a, a rushing torrent which becomes the Jordan River. And so these spies went into this land and they saw it was a good place, a lot easier than where they were. And uh, the people there were not particularly strong or well defended. And so uh, when they returned to Zorah and Eshtael, their fellow Danites asked them, how did you find things? And they answered, come on, let's attack them. We've seen the land and it's very good. Aren't you going to do something? Don't hesitate to go there and take it over. When you get there, you will find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into your hands, a land that lacks nothing whatever. And so the story goes on. The 600 men of the Danites armed for battle set out from Zorah and Eshtaol. On their way, they set up camp near Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. This is why the place west of Kiriath-Jerim is called Dan to this day. From there, they went on to the hill country of Ephraim and came to Micah's house. Now you get a sense, things are gonna get a little bit interesting from here on. They've just turned up, 600 of them at Micah's house. Then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their fellow Danites, Do you know that one of these houses has an ephod and some household gods and an image overlaid with silver? Now you know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites armed for battle stood at the entrance of the gates. The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at the entrance of the gate. It's a great image, isn't it? You get this picture of the five going in while 600 kind of just stood out there with their spears or their whatever weapons they had. I always think machetes, but that's probably not what they had. You know, just tapping them quietly, just... Just a sort of a veiled threat here. 600 of them standing there. Who's going to argue with 600 armed men? (laughs) Not me. When the five men went in to Micah's house and took the idol, the ephod and the household gods, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they answered him, be quiet, don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and a clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? The priest was very pleased. He took the ephod and the household gods, the idols, and went along with the people, putting their little children and livestock and possessions in front of them. And they turned away and left. <laughs> now, just when you thought the story couldn't get any worse, it has because the Levite has obviously decided much better to serve more people than less people. And he was not the only one, Micah. Micah was not the only one manufacturing religion to suit, so were the Danites. They'd found a good land to live in, one that they didn't have to fight too hard to take, one that they could take by their own strength, they only had to do a kind of a cursory reference to God. They had kind of sanctified it by getting a blessing along the way uh, and they're on a roll. What better now as we go to take our own priest? Let's do that, they said, and so they did. What's rather interesting actually from a historical perspective is that what they set up there in Dan, and this is a replica of the shrine that was built up there, not at this time but a little bit later on, what actually happened was in future times when after king solomon and the kingdom split into two you remember the south judah the north israel dan became the focus of the north the worship center for those who are in the north this shrine became a real thorn in the side for the people of israel it was not where god said they should worship they went up there and set that up god said you should gather in one place shiloh it was at this time and uh, they didn't. They decided to truck their religion up there to suit themselves. This shrine was set up at Laish or Dan as it has been renamed and, and we'll see that later in the text. But as far as the Levite was concerned, what a promotion. You know, you've got to feel good about that, wouldn't you, if you were the Levite? I mean, let's, let's think about this in terms of our context. He's been doing three days a week at Coriung and suddenly the BUV says, won't you be our director of ministries? And he says, of course I will. Who would knock that opportunity back? He's gone from serving one household to a whole tribe. Fantastic. What a blessing for him. But at what cost? He ended up working at Laash, which was actually outside the area of land that God had promised. He worked as priest for a people, the tribe of Dan, whose names are not actually recorded in the book of Revelation. If you've ever had a look there in Revelation chapter 5 where the tribes of Israel are listed, Dan is not mentioned. There's no inheritance, no eternal inheritance for the tribe of Dan. In other words, they didn't make it to heaven. So it was a big cost. The text goes on. When they'd gone some distance from Micah's house, Remember, they'd put the children and their possessions in front. They were expecting some kind of hostilities from behind. The men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. This is a great conversation. As they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, what's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? He replied, you took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask, what's the matter with you? The Danites answered, don't argue with us or some of the men might get angry and attack you and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. That mental picture of Micah walking back and the Danites, you know, don't argue with us. We're stronger than you are. Then they took what Micah had made and his priest and went on to Laash against a people at peace and secure. They attacked them with the sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Bethrehob as an epilogue to this story the Danites rebuilt the city and settled there they named it Dan after their ancestor Dan who was born to Israel though the city used to be called Laish there the Danites set up for themselves the idol and Jonathan the son of Gershom the son of Moses and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of captivity of the land and they continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh so one of the great sadnesses about this story, perhaps made all the sadder, is that this Levite was actually a direct descendant of Moses. The text suggests perhaps a grandson or, or close enough to a grandson, a great-grandson perhaps. And in some ways, the author of this passage is saying, look at, look at the mess that's created when you decide to do religion For yourself look at the mess that's created in the land this is kind of foreshadowing the division of the kingdom and all of the things that goes with that it's a sorry story and there's plenty of applications that we could make from the text but let me just make a couple of observations that you might want to reflect on as I've already noted the problem the problem that we see in this text is not idol worship in the sense of worship of other gods It's actually the corrupt worship of the Lord. And it's important to keep that in mind as we think about some applications. Because one of the most pervasive corruptions of our faith, a corruption that we see in the time of Micah and and exercised by the tribe of Dan, is what I might call um, the privatisation of religion. Have you ever thought about this as a problem? You know, we live in the affluent west where we own stuff, where we think about things from an individual uh, perspective, where our foundation for considering the world around us is very much about me, my needs, my individual kind of posture. And we carry that into our worship and our religion too, where church becomes all about me and my needs. I remember a few years ago, I was doing a funeral for somebody who, so far as I know, had only darkened the doors of the church twice in his life. Once when he was married, the second time was the day we were doing his funeral but someone in the family said to me oh John was a good man he had a very private faith I kind of want to ask the question what do you mean private faith what's a private faith I don't get private faith where do we see private faith in the New Testament you never look at the New Church uh, the New Testament church they didn't say oh wonderful blessing thank you Jesus for saving me now I'm going to hold it to myself There was nothing private about that. It was out there faith, it was public faith, but more more particularly it was not faith and ours is not a faith that we hold to ourselves. We celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Jesus invites us into, and here's some language that you'll be familiar with, uh, into a personal relationship, which is true, but it's a personal relationship which is to be lived out in community. It's not for us to hold on and say, oh, it's just you and me, Jesus, that's it. It's you and me, Jesus, and everyone who's here today. It's you and me, Jesus, and everyone who acknowledges Jesus Christ as Lord. One of the blind spots I think we have in the West is that idea that everything is you know, individual, private, it's all about my needs, whether it's how I express my faith in worship, you know I don't like certain songs so I don't sing them or whatever it might be, it's all about me or I don't particularly like this church so it's easy I can just go and do another one over the road. There's how many churches in Aubrey-Wodonga? Goodness me, plenty of choices. And if I don't like this one, I'll go to that one or whatever it might be. We've bought into that kind of convenience store idea that if I can't get it here, I'll get it there. It's all about my needs. That's one of the temptations of our age. And I've thought about this a little bit through the week. One of the challenges, I guess, post-COVID, and it would be lovely to talk about this too, is the whole online church experience. What does that do in terms of contributing to the privatisation of faith? Now I know there's, there's a good number of folks who are uh, watching our services regularly for very good reasons, uh, not able to be here because of health, family, distance, all sorts of things and we acknowledge that. But broadly one of the reflections that a number of pastors have made in this space is there's a number of people who just, it's easier just to sit at home and watch on telly and not have to engage with others and not have to be present with others for whatever reason. I don't have to put up with that person who sings out of tune or whatever it might be. It's comfortable. I can just wear my moccasins in front of the telly. Now, I'm not criticising anyone in that space, just throwing that question. What What does it mean in this age for the church as we think about corporate faith faith that's not just for us to manipulate and manage and shape as we see here in this passage one of the most telling statements in this whole story is found in chapter 18 verse 24 where Micah says these words when his idols were pinched what else do I have I don't have anything else I've lost everything all that I've invested in has come to nothing And there's a rather curious echo, and we'll finish at this point, an echo of these words if you have a look in John chapter 6. It's a time in the Gospel of John where, um, in chapter 6, verse 60 onwards, where Jesus is teaching and there's some hard things, there's some hard things that Jesus was teaching in that space. So much so that a number of disciples, a number of, and Jesus had many disciples, a number of them turned away. They said, we can't, we just can't, we can't fathom this, we can't understand this, we can't live with this. It's hard, actually, to be a disciple of Jesus. And at this point, Jesus turned to the twelve and said, what about you? Are you going to go as well? And it was Peter, dear Peter, who you know, we, we love because he's so like us, who, who spoke up in that moment and said, where else would we go? You're the only one who's got the words of eternal life. In other words, if we went, what else have we got? Same words, almost. Where else would we go? What else would we have? It's a bold statement, but it's an amazing affirmation of faith and an amazing affirmation of the sufficiency of Jesus. Because in a, in effect, Micah was saying, uh, sorry, Peter was saying same words as Micah. What else do I have? And for Peter, Jesus was enough, and Jesus is enough. We're going to sing as we conclude Uh, let me just leave those thoughts with you happy to interact with any of those but let's pray father we give you thanks again for speaking to us through this obscure part of the old testament we thank you lord for words of life that we find in it but words that challenge us too words that cause us to ask what's going on in our own hearts what's going on in our own church what's going on in our own culture and we pray lord that you would Uh, create a place where we can be brave enough to ask the questions that will drive us deeper to you. Forgive us, Lord, when we have privatised faith to the point that that we've just not shared with others, that we've not allowed that to impact us in terms of how we relate to other people. Forgive us, Lord, for, for the consumerism that we've often dressed our faith with or the materialism that's not far from our doors at any times and grant to us a fresh a vision of your purpose for your church in this time, in this season, we pray. We thank you, God, for being with us and speaking to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are enough, and we worship you. Amen.